Hi everyone, this is the podcast of the Baldi Center for Law and Social Policy, produced at the University at Buffalo. I am your host and producer, Azalia Muhransyah. This episode, I have Amanda Hewitt on the phone with me. Amanda is an assistant professor of legal studies at the University of Illinois Springfield and an affiliated researcher at the Baldi Center for Law and Social Policy. Amanda, can you please tell us about your book project? My book project um, examines how efforts to litigate around prison conditions in the 1970s unintentionally cut against um, imprisoned people's efforts to mobilize at the grassroots level. So I trace uh, primarily prisoners' efforts to unionize in the 1970s, which was a movement that was surprisingly successful. And I show how that movement ended up running against efforts primarily led by um, folks who were working with the ACLU to create new procedural mechanisms uh, within the prison designed to protect and prison people's rights. So during the early 1970s, imprisoned people in many states across uh, the nation worked to form labor unions of their own. And they drew inspiration from a number of different places. In part, they were tapping into this broader discussion that was taking place within the United States about participatory democracy and about, in particular, the needs to make American institutions more democratic. Um, We can see that in efforts uh, coming out of great society programs from the Johnson administration that were attempting to make uh, poverty programs more participatory by including uh, the poor people who they served. Um, And some of that trickled into corrections practices too, where even some of the leading correctional experts thought that in order to make prisons safer, Uh, and less violent, you needed to give imprisoned people some degree of say in the policies that shaped their lives. Relatedly, they were also drawing uh, inspiration from this broader upsurge of labor organizing that was happening uh, beyond the prison gates in the early 1970s, particularly in the nation's public sector. So workers who labored for the state, who labored for their cities, who labored for the federal government. Public sector unionism was on the rise at the very moment that labor organizing in the private sector was starting to decline. The imprisoned people who I write write about understood themselves, like public sector workers, as laboring for the state. So they attempted to leverage that labor to uh, bargain collectively with prison administrators, and again, to gain a seat at that policy-making table to shape the procedures and practices that impacted their everyday lives. You know, part of the story that I tell has to do with how much the prison was on people's minds in the early 1970s. It was on their minds for a couple of reasons, in part because imprisoned people demanded that people on the outside pay attention. 
in 1971, uh, not far from Buffalo in Attica, New York. There was the largest um, prison uh, protest in American history, uh, one that left 43 people dead. Uh, the nation watched that take place on national TV. But at the same time, the other thing that was happening in the early 1970s is essentially that, um, that the state and the federal government was really cracking down on radical activism. So part of the story that I tell is about how, um, how activists on the outside ended up, rounded up <laughs> um, as a result of their activism, put in prison, but the joke was on the state because they kept organizing. And so they served often as the bridges between activists on the outside and those inside the prison. So it ended up being this sort of broader movement that bridged those walls in the 70s. Why do you specifically tell the history of North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union in your book? So the NCPLU, the North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union, is a great story to tell in part because their case in 1977 landed in the Supreme Court. Um, but the outcome was not good for them. Uh, in Jones v. North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union, uh, the court ruled essentially that um, that the that federal courts should defer to prison administrators on issues regarding imprisoned people's First Amendment rights. So that's a long way of saying that Jones v. North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union allowed prison administrators to curtail imprisoned people's First Amendment rights whenever they thought their speech threatened prison security. So in the wake of Jones then, prison administrators across the United States erected new barriers that made it really difficult for imprisoned people to organize in the same ways that they did in the early 1970s. So following the Prisoners Labor Union in North Carolina allows me to trace that huge arc to really dig into the details of what this union was doing, but also to tell a broader national story about how doors closed for imprisoned activists during the late 1970s. There are lots of activists that are still in, you know, that are still mobilizing inside prisons. In 2016 and 2018, there were major protests across the United States, but there are not prisoners unions anymore. And there's not prisoners unions for a couple of reasons. And the first one stems from Jones, right? that uh, the sort of broad, widespread, cross-prison activism that was happening in the 70s got crushed in the wake of Jones. But the other thing that happened has to do with shifts in prison labor. So for the most part, um, um, imprisoned people in the early 1970s worked. Um, they worked in a wide array of jobs. In North Carolina and other places across the South, they still worked in jobs that were largely an outgrowth of big prison plantations that operated after the Civil War. But beginning in um, the 1970s, or even beginning a little bit earlier, but definitely coming into play in the 1970s, fewer and fewer in prison people labored behind bars. 
Today, um, around 50% of imprisoned people have jobs. But a lot of people find prison actually really boring. A lot of people sit around in prison, right? So in the early 1970s, it made a lot of sense for imprisoned people to sort of see themselves as laborers. But today, I argue in my book, and I would say that this is probably a more contentious claim, but I would say that, that labor is not um, as much of a sort of identifier among imprisoned people as perhaps it was in the early 1970s. Are prisoners not allowed to unionize because they are not laborers despite doing work in the prison? So I think, um, yes, uh, uh, not necessarily in Jones, but before Jones, there were a number of sort of cases where imprisoned people um, brought their efforts to unionize to state labor relations boards, right? And at first, in the night in the early 1970s, in like 72, some labor relations boards thought maybe um, that you know there were definitely um, uh, uh, elements of the relationship that between imprisoned people in the state that resembled the relate how public sector workers operate. Uh, but then in the years that followed, uh, they sort of closed that door and decided that no, prison labor does not resemble labor beyond the prison. That instead, uh, uh, and in fact, it's really interesting that part of the argument about why prisoners are not laborers in the same way that outside workers are, is that um, the states argue that labor is for rehabilitation purposes. That it's not about um, it's not about wages. It's it's a part of the services the prison provides, which is very you know just filled with irony, right? But now in Jones, it wasn't that it wasn't necessarily the sort of constitutionality of unionization for prisoners that was on trial. Instead, it was for it was speech rights. That's what that's what was the heart of that case, right? So the question wasn't, um, you know, can prisoners unionize? The question was, when can prison officials curtail in prison people's speech? And it was through deciding that speech could be curtailed that the prisoners' unions were crushed. So in theory, um, prisoners could still form unions. Unionism in and of itself is not illegal, but prison administrators wouldn't have to allow them meetings, wouldn't, you know, they didn't, wouldn't need them to allow them to recruit others. Um, they could crush it pretty easily. Ironic stories sit at the center of the story that I tell in my book, right? Uh, that, um, yes, so sort of what you're seeing in the Jones case is the court saying, yeah, you guys have First Amendment rights, but prison administrators get to decide when you can exercise them. Uh, the same thing to some extent happens with access to court, that the courts say, yeah, you have access to the courts, but we're going to put all these procedural hurdles in the way to make it really difficult for you to reach the courts. There's irony in the story about imprisoned people's labor, too, that during the early 1970s, imprisoned people's labor, which we you know, think largely uh, about as bad, as exploitative, actually gave imprisoned people leverage 
to demand changes to the prison system. And as fewer and fewer imprisoned people came to work, as prisons uh, depended less and less on imprisoned people's labor for support, imprisoned people to some extent lost power. In theory, imprisoned people have more sort of positive economic rights than you and me, right? That imprisoned people actually have um, a right to health care. They have a right to, you know, safe shelter and um, decent food. But because those rights are filtered through prison administrators in the way that we discussed that prison administrators to such an extent get to decide how rights are enforced, um, that those rights are often meaningless in practice. And it was actually sort of this irony that, that the prisoner's labor union recognized that rights didn't mean much to imprisoned people unless uh, sort of prisons were more democratic, unless imprisoned people had a seat at the table, unless they had some power to be able to make sure their rights were enforced. And sort of that's what they were fighting for, that rights were meaningless without enforcement, and they wanted the power to help enforce those rights. So given that prisoners cannot unionize, does this mean that companies can tap into this potential source of labor and exploit them? I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about prison labor. First of all, I think um, people think that uh, prison labor is very profitable, that um, that people end up behind bars and it's a, a way for corporations to, to, to make money off of imprisoned people's labor. But actually, less than 1% of imprisoned people work for companies that operate beyond the prison. The majority of people who work behind bars, and again, about only about 50% of people work behind bars, um, they work in jobs that help the prison function. So they work in the cafeteria, they perform administrative tasks, they perform janitorial duties. A smaller percentage of imprisoned people labor in prison industries, so they produce goods and perform services directly for the government, so usually for their state. And then again, that small less than 1% of imprisoned people are laboring for private companies. So I think that it's um, um, dangerous to think about the problem of mass incarceration as one just about the exploitation of prison labor. It's much bigger, right? It's a question about how states uh, decide to spend their money. Uh, it's a question about race too, right? If prison is less about exploiting imprisoned people's labor, then what is it about? You know, it's about constructing a racial hierarchy. It's doing sort of other sort of work. But to be clear, that's not to say that people don't profit from mass incarceration. They do in myriad ways, uh, largely by selling stuff to prisons, right? So there's a ton of contractors that make money off of selling prisoners mattresses, uh, by jacking up the prices of phone calls, by the high cost of commissary items, right? 
But I would argue that it's not necessarily prison labor <laughs> where people are making bank, that it's actually much less um, sort of profitable than, than people think. To summarize, what do you think is the biggest takeaway from your research? Yeah, I think if there's one lesson that my research has taught me, it's that prisons are fundamentally inhumane places, that there's nothing that you can do to really make them humane. And so I think that, you know, so much of my book project is about efforts, you know, big and small to sort of tinker with how prisons worked, right? That these imprisoned people wanted to make prisons more democratic, that the lawyers who I write about wanted to make the prison more procedurally fair. But none of it really worked. And in fact, a lot of the efforts to make prisons more procedurally fair and more bureaucratic actually sort of made them harder to dismantle, in part because they made them appear as if they sort of followed the rule of law. And so I think that the solution then is decarceration, that the best way to deal with the inhumanity of prison is to get people out of prison and to invest in other things, right? to invest in education, to invest in healthcare, to invest in all the social programs beyond the prison that um, help people lead successful lives. I think that, you know, again, if we think about imprisonment uh, um, as sort of less about profiting off of incarcerated people's labor, but instead about how states are actively sort of paying to imprison people, many of whom don't have much to do throughout the day, then we think about prisons as a, as a, as a waste, right? And so let's use that money to do other, other things. Uh, I see especially the lawyers who I write about as often really torn between efforts to, you know, push toward decarceration and uh, abolition and efforts to help the people who are very much suffering at this moment, right? And I think we have to do both, um, but with an eye always toward decarceration and uh, getting people out. That was Amanda Hewitt, and this has been the Baldi Center for Law and Social Policy podcast, produced at the University at Buffalo. Please visit our website, buffalo.edu slash for more episodes. And follow our social media on Facebook and Twitter at Baldi Center. Until next time, I am your host and producer, Azalia Mohansyah.